Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. It has been a pretty strange week. For most of us in the United States, but definitely in Florida, our daily lives have taken a sudden and drastic turn. With a global pandemic and national emergency, the way we survive simply gets thrown into bedlam. I'm working on the last handful of episodes of this season right now before we take somewhat of a break until summer, but instead of getting to those stories this week, I wanted to tell you a collection of the wonderful little stories that I couldn't fit into an episode. There's so much going on, and I just wanted to tell you some of the happy and weird little stories that I find while I'm working on the other big episodes of this show. I have a great privilege because of this podcast that I get to stumble into some amazing little mysteries or folk tales or characters. I find that the more time you spend looking around, the more you find something hilarious or bizarre or fascinating that you just can't let go. So this week, as a little reprieve from all of the chaos and insanity going around in this world, I wanted to share with you some of my favorite little stories that I couldn't fit into a big full episode. The first of those stories can be found in the St. Mary's Submarine Museum up in the tiny coastal town of St. Mary's, Georgia. I visited this little town at the end of 2019 in preparation for the premiere of this season, all about the shape of Florida. It was a very cold, very rainy day, and I didn't see the sun until about four in the afternoon once I was finally on the way home. Fort Clinch, my first stop on the visit, was very busy despite the weather, and a reenactor in a Union Blue uniform stood by the fire in the kitchen. I don't know if you've ever spoken with a reenactor before, but there's difficulty in striking the balance between acknowledging that they are in character as a person from 1863 and I'm in a denim jacket with a cell phone in my hand. Still, this reenactor gladly rattled off dates and events from Florida history at a breakneck speed. I tried to keep up with them, attempting to show off my own extensive historical research, but the reenactor knew years and titles to a depth I could never have anticipated. I left the warmth of the kitchen fire bested. Across the river from Fort Clinch in St. Mary's, Georgia, the St. Mary's Submarine Museum was equally out of my depth, no pun intended. My military knowledge is unfortunately lacking, and the specific field of submarine history is new ground for me entirely. So imagine my surprise when, hidden amongst a pile of other memorabilia set on top of a glass case, I found a cartoon of a snake in a sailor's uniform that looked strikingly familiar. The design, the coloring, the style, it all reminded me of something that I couldn't quite put my finger on. But a huge signature scribbled along the bottom indicated why. It was signed by Walt Disney. The signature itself is actually misleading. It may belong to Walt Disney and his larger art company, and certainly representative of the art style perpetuated by his brand, but the artist that drew this piece would not be recognized by his name. He was not Walt Disney. He was Hank Porter, and he drew this piece at the end of the Second World War to honor a Navy submarine that went on to serve for nearly two decades after it was initially created. It was called the USS Aspro, named for a type of poisonous fish that was commonly found in the rivers of Europe. The ship was commissioned by the Navy in December of 1942 and took off from Hawaii the following November. 
the Pacific arena of World War II held many of their conflicts at sea, with submarines and boats and planes from the Japanese and their allies entering conflicts with America and their allies. The submarine's purpose in the Navy was to run patrols, running through war-struck waters for a period of about three months, scanning for enemy ships, engaging in combat, and supporting other ships out in the battlefields. The ASPRO took seven different patrols of the Pacific Ocean from 1943 to 1945. By the time the war was done, the submarine was awarded seven battle stars for each of its patrols. And around that time, as the war was ending, Hank Porter drew the piece of art that I found in this museum 74 years later. The drawing is of a coiled green snake with a sailor hat and shirt. He has arms and hands, an unusual trait for real snakes, obviously, but in this cartoon form, they had the iconic gloves that Disney characters often have. They're yellow in this art. He has them positioned around his mouth as if he is yelling. Firing from his fanged maw are a handful of black torpedoes that are exploding onto a little beetle that is prone on the ground beneath the snake. There is more art like this around the museum, all extremely common at this time, depicting colorful, angry, sometimes grotesque looking fish dressed as sailors, firing ballistics from their mouths, inhaling enemy ships, and more. The snake art of the USS Aspro, while still unusual, is much more cartoonish, more akin to a comic panel than a battle flag. Hank Porter was iconic for art like this. Back in the 1930s, working for the Disney Corporation, Hank Porter would draw comic art of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves at the exact same time that the film was being made in 1937. He even did some of the animation for the film itself. He drew part of the iconic High Ho sequence and animated a few other pieces of the dwarves throughout the movie. Porter, a son of upstate New York and an artist trained at the Chicago Academy of Fine Art, worked primarily in advertising before working for Disney. He opened his own ad company in Buffalo, New York, where he worked for eight years. After finishing some of his animation work, the ad man moved on to working in publicity for Disney. In 1941, one Lieutenant E.S. Caldwell reached out to Walt Disney asking for a personal insignia for a fleet of small torpedo boats called PT boats. Many of these little boats were built in port cities around the state of Florida and were used by the Navy in the war to send an armed vehicle into enemy water, make a quick blitz attack, and get out before being captured or attacked. Walt Disney himself asked Hank Porter to design the insignia for these little crafts, and Porter decided that the creature best suited to represent the PTs was, naturally, a mosquito. He drew a cartoon of a little mosquito with a torpedo in its legs, a sailor hat on its head, and within a year, the little navy insect was on the side of all of the pilot houses on top of the boats. After this commission, throughout the length of the war, Disney got more requests for military insignia than anything else. Porter was a lead on the project, along with Roy Williams, George Gaper, and Van Kaufman. Porter, an artist to his core, did not rush through any project given his way. He would paint in watercolor, layer in saturation, accentuate character and emotion. It is believed that by the end of the war, Hank Porter had personally created over a thousand insignia for the military. He would draw art for bomb squads with a rabbit on a missile, for tank battalions with a tortoise wearing boxing gloves, for a naval medical research with Donald Duck examining a skull. He drew the insignia for the 124th Infantry Division of the Army, made up entirely of Florida-based soldiers. The insignia features a tortoise bashing a snail over the head with a club. 
Porter became so representative of the Disney brand that Walt Disney allowed Porter to officially sign documents as Walt Disney, which is why the snake of the USS Aspro does not bear Porter's name. It bears the signature of Walt Disney in Porter's hand. He died just five years after the war ended from cancer, but his art is still being sold and collected to this day, 70 years after his passing. In a museum by the cold St. Mary's River, his full-color art still stands proud. That museum's existence is without a doubt an act of love. The people who own and operate the submarine museum surely have great affection for the stories they get to tell. In the past two years, I found so many places like this, operated by people who find endless joy in the thing they have dedicated their lives to. The value of their passion is not missed, especially by those who rely on them. For Brendan Byrne at WMFE, as a journalist who specializes in the space industry, passionate people are part of the job. It's just par for the course. Brendan and I talked for almost 40 minutes about the history of Cape Canaveral a few months ago, and maybe only five minutes of that conversation was used in the January episode From Florida to the Moon. There is far more from that episode that needs to be shared. Brendan is one of my favorite people to talk to. He's extremely passionate himself, and he gets to meet some of the amazing people who are so engaged in the space travel industry. So NASA has a whole department that's, you know, devoted to external communication and, and getting public interest. And uh, they've got great partnerships with schools and, and working with, you know, curriculums to, to get young kids interested in it. Uh, they broadcast all their launches that are NASA um, through NASA TV, which is free. And uh, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex does a really good job at kind of building that interest as well. So so they are they're not a federal property. They are a private company. Um, it's run by a, a theme park company. Uh, but they have a bunch of different ways for you to get out there and watch these launches. And then there's the public beaches. You can go out and do it as well. Um, I think SpaceX has done such a good job building interest and excitement, um, not intentionally, because when SpaceX first came on the scene, they were very um, non-transparent, <laughs> uh, opaque. Um, if I could find a stronger word, I would use that. It was very difficult to get any information out of them. Um, but because of the cool things that they were doing, there was just this kind of organic interest. Um, SpaceX has a huge fan base of people that are extremely dedicated to the company and what it does um, and have no financial stake in it. They don't work there. They're not investors. Um, and I think it's just because they're doing something cool. And But, but I think that that in itself is transferable to all of the space programs is that this is something really cool and it's something that you know, everyone can say rocket launches are effing cool. Like you, you, you can't, I've never met anybody that doesn't like them. Um, and I think it's just because that's who we are as human beings. We're inherently explorers and these are the people and, and the pieces of hardware in the spacecraft that are doing our exploration off of our planet. Like that's cool. You don't really have to work too hard to make that sound interesting. <laughs> but on top... <laughs> don't let my boss hear that, though. <laughs> Brendan has also found that fans of space travel go an extra mile to watch the skies in person, and some work extra hard to keep everyone informed on the comings and goings of Cape Canaveral. Along the coast, when a launch is preparing on Merritt Island, folks gather in coastal parks and in one called Space View Park, a man named Ozzy makes sure everyone knows exactly what's going on. 
I have gone and kind of done a story as to like what people come out and watch. And I went to Space View Park, which is in Titusville. Um, and there is um, this fellow there. His name is Ozzy Osband. And he is he has been hosting watch parties at Space View Park for as long as I've been covering the space program, um, which isn't very long. I've been told he's been doing it even longer. Um, Ozzy is, is very committed to uh, the Space Coast and public outreach of, of people knowing about what we do here. Um, the area code for phone numbers in Brevard County is 321. That's because of Ozzy. Ozzy was the one who led the charge and went to the FCC to try to um, get that and 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 he get he got the first 321 cell phone number. Um, so he, he's a he's a guy who is just totally invested in this program. He's a ham radio operator. Uh, so he's he gets set up before people come out there. There's this one light pole right in the middle of the park. And he get gets this big antenna. He ties up there. He's listening to the comms loops. He's got video, uh, you know, coming from you know UHW signal that he's got. Uh, and, and he will let everyone know what's going on in the countdown. And will would absolutely loves to talk to new people about what to expect, the information about the rocket, the mission, and all this stuff. He is the unofficial ambassador of the Space Coast, and it was so much fun to. Sp- I think I spent a few launches. Uh, with with Ozzy, um, and he's fantastic. And 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 Ozzy is is such a dedicated person to this that if I mess up in one of my reports, I will get a phone call or an email or a text message from Ozzy, and I know that I'm like, oh, I, I might, I think I missed a detail. Let me get this out there. I missed a story that I should have covered. Ozzy Ozzy keeps me in check. Um, but that's he's just, awesome. <laughs> he's a, he's a treasure to have, um, and it, it's just it's people go to Space View Park, I think, because of of Ozzy Osbourne, and um, it's just really cool to see someone who has that much dedication and, you know, zero stake, and he he still is out there as passionate as, you know, the, the folks that are paid to communicate this stuff, um, and it's just really cool to see him. Ozzy has, without meaning to, made himself part of the cultural landscape of Titusville. I find that folks don't mean to write themselves into history that often. Most people are living their lives doing what they feel is right, and they find themselves at the moment where stories begin to be told. And sometimes, that person involved in that story isn't a person at all. Sometimes, they're a dog named Brownie. I spent an entire weekend driving back and forth from Orlando to Daytona Beach. I'm not a frequent visitor to Daytona's shores. I prefer to spend my summer days at New Smyrna. When one finds themselves driving into Daytona, the icons that one would associate with the city are prevalent immediately. The Daytona 500 Speedway is visible from the highway, along with shops greeting bikers for Bike Week, a huge Welcome to Daytona sign, and high-rise beach hotels awaiting along the coast. Daytona is unapologetically Daytona. When I visited on Friday, it was to attend Quilt Week, a national quilting expo that was making its first stop on its tour at the Ocean Center in Daytona. I wrote about my trip for Townie Tourist. You can read about that very soon. The next day, I returned to Daytona to do some research for next week's episode. Across the street from my destination, the Halifax Historical Museum, was a small grave by the Halifax River. 
a stone tombstone laid in the grass with a gray statue of a smiling dog with his eyes cast to the western sky. It's a recreation of a dog named Brownie. I've never heard of him, but a few decades ago, along this street, Brownie was the biggest name in town. According to Brownie's official website, he first arrived in town in 1940, a young stray who would wander around Beach Street along the river. The owner of the Daytona cab company, Ed Budgen, built Brownie a doghouse for him to reside in when he wasn't walking the streets. Brownie was sort of a medium-sized dog. Looking at pictures of him, he seems to be some kind of hound, maybe a Labrador of some type, but if you just look up a picture of a dog in the dictionary, Brownie's the dog you'd see. He's average in all ways, and I think that's what endeared people to him. Local townspersons would donate money to Brownie via a bank account that was established in his name, and the funds would pay for food and vet services for the dog. Over the course of his 15 years living in Daytona Beach, Brownie became such a well-known figure in town that everyone who was around at the time still has clear memories of spending time with him. Fane LaVille, the director of the Halifax Historical Museum who spent the morning with me that Saturday, told me that when she was a child in the 1950s growing up in Daytona Beach, as she would sit at the bus stop waiting, Brownie would visit her and her brother until the bus arrived. This was true for many residents of the town over his tenure as town mascot. His life was cataloged in the newspapers, both local and national. When he got a special bath for Christmas, it was written about in the papers, quote, with his bright red Christmas bow around his neck, end quote. People would send him cards from around the country. Every holiday, or even on normal days, Brownie was treated to a huge bowl of ice cream, his favorite, which he would gladly consume. As he got older, it's noted that he began to gain a little more weight, but still kept up his usual routine around town. If anything was ever wrong with Brownie, maybe they didn't see him that day, maybe he had a limp, the residents would take note and would ensure that he was okay. They'd ask the cab company about his health, they'd offer to pay for a trip to the vet. Daytona had been growing and bustling and developing for decades, and Brownie ensured that this city wasn't just going to be a hub of commerce. It was going to be a home for people. When Brownie passed away on Halloween 1954, they couldn't let his life go unremembered. The mayor passed a law so Brownie could be buried on public property by the river where he is to this day. Next to the grave is a statue which encapsulates his happy energy forever. And on the dais where that statue stands, it reads, Brownie, the town dog. I was watching the news a few days ago and Dr. Sanjay Gupta was talking about how best people can care for each other during this crisis that we are facing at a global, national, and local scale. He said that at a time like this, we've never been more dependent on the people around us. We always need one another at least a little bit, but when the world presents us with an emergency, we have to be there for others and hope that others are there for us. We hope that the people around us are washing their hands and isolating themselves what they need to and keeping themselves however healthy as they can be. Even if we're removing the social element from our lives, isolation somehow becomes one of the friendliest things we can do. If we can protect ourselves, we can protect each other. If we check in on those who are vulnerable or in need of support or give whatever we are able to give, we can be at our very best. The little kindnesses matter from the people who choose to do what they can. Like a cartoonist who worked overtime for four years to honor veterans, or a fan who sets up a shop at every rocket launch to inform other visitors of the amazing things happening in our skies, or a very good dog who waits with you while you wait for the bus. 
It's not just the big sweeping changes that leave an impact. It's the things we do for each other that make history. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way to the beginning. Might I recommend the episodes that spawned the stories in this episode, The Shape of Florida and From Florida to the Moon from January. And, of course, be sure to find out why I was in Daytona in the first place. I'll give you a clue. Tomorrow, March 17th, is the anniversary of the day Jackie Robinson first broke the color barrier in baseball, and he did it in Florida. I'd like to give a special shout out yet again to my friend Brendan Byrne. He works at WMFE here in Orlando and hosts the radio show and podcast, Are We There Yet? It is one of my can't-miss podcasts. You really should give it a listen. Check it out at the link below. There are also many, many ways that you can support your local communities during this national emergency. I've included some links at the very top of the description below, so you can support those around you at your convenience. If you did enjoy this episode, by the way, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it makes the work easier. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her work at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Nix is spelt N-I-X. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music below. Next Monday. Jackie Robinson, Mary McLeod Bethune, and baseball. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water, wash your hands, be well. Have a good week. <laughs>